they are fine. They never once think that how they pray might be just as important as the fact that they do pray. Let me ask you this morning, do you ever stop and wonder if you are praying correctly? Did the thought ever cross your mind that your prayer might not be the kind of prayer God wants us to have? Have you ever considered that some prayers in the Bible are categorized as bad prayers? In the book of James, we're told that some prayers are not being answered because we pray selfishly. Jesus, at one point, said and warned us against praying in certain bad patterns. And Jesus said, don't pray like that. Well, this morning, we will continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And it is the seventh sermon in the series, which we entitled, Living on Earth, the Kingdom of Heaven. And the title of today's message is, The Prayer of the Kingdom. The Prayer of the Kingdom. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 15. Now, for those of you who are using uh, one of the Bibles that is provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this Bible, this uh, passage, on page 839. 839 in, in the Bible, Bible is provided for you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 15. Here's the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they like babbling. They think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer before the Father. Father, we pray, we ask in these moments, teach us how to pray. And Father, we pray that through your word, we would learn how is it that we, as citizens of your kingdom, should pray in light of the kingdom of heaven? Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us, and we pray that your, your word would teach us. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, last week we、um, looked at a warning that Jesus gave, a major warning in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the first warning that Jesus gave in the sermon, but a major warning Jesus gave, cautioning his disciples not to pursue righteousness for the sake of appearing righteous before men. You remember last week we looked at how Jesus used three examples of trying to appear righteous before men. We may try to appear righteous before men as we are trying to be generous. We may try to appear righteous before men in the way we pray in public, in a way that would draw attention to us, and we may try to gain or or seek the righteousness of God for the sake of appearing righteous by fasting. We looked at all these three、uh, examples and the principle last week. What's amazing is that of the three principles, of the three examples, Jesus gives most of his attention to the issue of prayer. It's not just that we would seek to appear righteous before men by praying long prayers in public, and Jesus said last week, we looked at that last week, that that is clearly, clearly a danger, a trap we should stay away from. We should not pray simply so that we may. Come across as men of prayer, but Jesus gave some other warnings. Our prayers might be ineffective if we pray the wrong way, and that's why today Jesus, we will look at Jesus' words and teaching of how should we pray in order that our prayers might be effective, and that's why the title of the sermon today is the prayer of the kingdom, the prayer of the kingdom. We will look at false assumptions about prayer. That will be the first point. Then the second point will be looking at how we should address God rightly in prayer. And finally, we will look at the priorities of the kingdom prayers. The priorities of the kingdom prayers. Let's look at the first point: some false assumptions about prayer that Jesus is addressing, that Jesus is bringing out. Look at verses seven and eight. Jesus says in verse seven. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now, the word for babbling means using the same words again and again, or it may also mean speaking without thinking. Have you have you ever been in that position? You know what you are to say. You've said it so many times. It's it's it sounds like a poem, and you just get that in that mode of saying the same answer over and over again, and you no longer think about it. Babbling. Apparently, the pagans would fall into this trap quite a lot. Pagans in ancient times believed in prayer. That may be shocking for us. Today, when we think of pagans. We think they—they're secular people. They don't believe in the things of God. They don't believe in spiritual things. But in ancient times, pagans believed in prayer. They even believed that、uh, they could be heard in prayer. What they, where, where they got it wrong was in the conditions they thought necessary in order to be heard in prayer. They—they—they they, they thought that. In order to be heard in prayer, they had to engage in long repetitions of the same words to the sake of to the to the point of speaking without thinking. Such pagan practices would 
would view prayer as merely an emotional encounter without being cognizant and aware of what such people prayed. Or such pagan practices would view prayer as merely a mechanical formula. And Jesus forbids his disciples to be like the pagans in their prayers. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, do not be like them. Friends, there is a way we can pray to God that might be wrong. By babbling the same words over and over again. Or trying to get into these mechanical ways, mechanical assumptions about prayer. Now some people think that God will hear prayers based on how many words we say. Think about it for a moment. You may be here this morning and say, I, I don't fall in that trap. But some people think that God will hear their prayers based on how many people will pray. Now, sometimes when a tragedy hits our lives, we announce everybody to get praying, and this is a very good thing. However, what is dangerous is to assume that we have a greater chance of being heard by God if more people pray. It is dangerous to think that somehow God will be more moved to respond if there were enough people who would plead with Him. Friends, don't think that God is like a human organization uh, who is more likely to respond to a petition if enough people sign it. You've seen those emails that, that ask you to, to sign your name? And if, if you have 100,000 names this organization or this particular part of the government will really listen to our petition. More words, more names would not make God listen in, in a greater way as if just one person would pray. Don't think of God in that kind of mechanical way or trying to manipulate God. In James, uh, at the end of James, the book of James, uh, the author says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I'm not against us asking people to pray for us when we're in a tragedy. Don't get me wrong. But here's what I want to caution you against. Don't come to God with this assumption, the more words or the more prayer, the more chances we have for God to listen to our prayers. Such assumptions are foreign. Such assumptions are pagan. Instead, we should come to God being aware and thinking and knowing that God knows what we need even before we need it, even before we ask of Him. We have to keep this principle of, of, of simple prayers in mind with what Jesus teaches elsewhere in the Gospels, specifically in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus taught His disciples to pray without giving up. Jesus gave a parable of, a, of an unjust judge who ignored the plea of a widow. And you remember the story? The judge would not want to respond to the request of this widow. But since the widow did not give up bringing her plea to this unjust judge, he finally gave in and honored her request. So Jesus taught us and his disciples that we should not give up praying. We should not grow weary in praying. Now how do we combine what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6 here in the Sermon on the Mount about not saying many words or not repeating. And what Jesus teaches in, in Luke 18, where he also says, don't give up praying. 
how do we combine these? Well, in Luke 18, the principle Jesus is giving is that the quality of our prayer life is a measure of the quality of our faith. Just because God knows that we need uh, something and He knows it before we ask Him should not lead us to think lightly of prayer. We should not say, what does it matter if we pray? Friends, prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. Prayer is effective. However, its effectiveness is not based on a mechanical or on a manipulative attitude we bring towards God. Therefore, prayer should not consist of idle repetitions or mindless petitions, and it should definitely not be guided by the ridiculous assumption that the probability of an answered prayer is based on the amount of words we use in praying. Some Christians like this principle of short prayers because they don't like praying. There's some of you here right now who, who say, yes, no long prayers. But the reason why you rejoice in that is because you just don't like spending long times in prayer. Friends, short prayers are not a sign of of, of more maturity, necessarily. As a matter of fact, in many cases, short prayers might be the sign of a shallow spirituality. Just as long prayers can be the sign of a misplaced spirituality. The issue is not the amount of words. The issue is the quality of our words, is the thinking that goes behind our words. Friends, I wonder in which of these extremes you might find yourself today. Do you like short prayers because you just don't like praying much? Or are you falling on the other extreme that you, you like long prayers because you think you have more chance to be heard by God? Both are wrong extremes. I think the way to look forward is, is to look at the example of Jesus. He's a great example of, prayer, of praying rightly. Uh, he often withdrew himself from the crowds in order to have longer times of isolated prayer. But he also prayed in public. Now, some of his prayers were short, like the prayer on the Sermon on the Mount is a pretty short prayer. Six petitions. That is it. We'll look at them. But sometimes he prayed longer. In John chapter 17, it's a, it's a long chapter. It's a pretty long prayer. Sometimes Jesus prayed repeatedly. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went three times to pray. But it's not the mechanical things, it's not the mechanical assumptions that matter. It's, it's a kind of thinking, it's a kind of framework we bring to prayer. Friends, be wary of praying the same things, the same phrases every time you pray. You know, I catch myself in that trap. Sometimes I pray before a meal and I go into my praying mood and I pray exactly the same phrases. And I listen to other people pray and you know exactly who's praying because they pray exactly the same way. Nothing changed. It's like their prayers 50 years ago. Friends, be aware that we can fall into this, into this trap of, of praying, but we're just going into, into our prayer poems without thinking biblically and cognizantly of what we're praying. Once Jesus explored or exposed some false assumptions about prayer, he gives us a great example of prayer and, and teaches his disciples how to pray. Now, Jesus in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is not teaching us what to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. 
You know what's funny in, in this whole experience, in this passage, as much as Jesus in verses 7 and 8 warned against repetitious prayers or, you know, praying mechanically, the Lord's Prayer, this is a peak of, of irony, the Lord's Prayer has often become such a mechanical prayer in the history of Christianity. People just prayed without thinking about it. People just say the words without really knowing what it means. How sad that the very prayer that Jesus used to teach us how to pray so we don't pray mechanically has become a prayer that we just say, utter without thinking twice about it. Now, should you not memorize? Is it wrong to memorize the Lord's Prayer and, and say it and have it ready? No. One of the greatest things we can do is to memorize the Lord's Prayer. One of the things we do here in this church, we occasionally read the, words, the Lord's Prayer together as a congregation. But we don't do it to, to mechanically bring petitions before the Father. We do it to remind ourselves of the perspectives God wants us to have when we bring petitions to Him in prayer. We're not supposed merely to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer, but to think through our prayers and engage in them from the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. And so this prayer is a, is a model of the mindset we should bring in prayer. Now, before we look at the actual petitions, let's look at, let's look at the right way to address God in prayer. Look at verse 9. The prayer of the kingdom addresses God in the right categories. Jesus teaches his disciples to address God as Father, our Father who art in heaven. Now, even though such a way of addressing God is, is no longer surprising to us, for a Jew, this was a shocking way to address God. It was such a personal way. Jews were not expected. They were not aware. They were not used to addressing God in such a personal way. It's in, in some way an unusual personal way of addressing God. Now, for us today, addressing God as Father is, is, is no longer that surprising. But I want to remind you all today that not everyone can address God as Father. The Bible teaches us that only those who have repented of their sins who trust in Jesus as the one who paid for their sins by dying on the cross on their behalf, only those whose guilt has been covered by the blood of Christ, only those who made allegiance to God, only those who responded to obey God, only those who confess Jesus is Lord, only they have received the adoption to God's family, only they can truly address God as Father. Only they have received a new birth, and prior to that, such people were under the wrath of God. But now they have been made children of God. And only such people can address God as our Father. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. You can, anyone can address God as Father in a mechanical way. That's not the issue. But not everyone can address God as Father in a meaningful way. You know, with the kind of meaning that Scripture assumes. And I wondered this morning, are you able to address God as your Father in a meaningful way? For those of us who are Christians, we have the confidence to address God in this way, but those folks, those who are not Christians, cannot address God in, in a meaningful way. 
And if you're here this morning and you'd like to know what it means to address God as Father in a meaningful way, I would love to talk to you more about this at the end of the service. But it's a great privilege. It's a great gift that we can address God as Father. Now notice for those of us who are Christians and who have the confidence to address God as our Father, notice how Jesus addresses God, our Father who art in heaven. Even though the, the idea, the label, our Father, is such a personal label, we should not forget, we should not assume that intimacy with God somehow is done at the expense of, of keeping a right reverence towards God. Yes, our Father is with us everywhere we go, but we have to remember that our Father is in heaven. Intimacy with God should never be sought in such a way that we lose reverence towards God. Today we think that intimacy with God means casualness with God. We think of intimacy with God as, as if we could treat God as our buddy-buddy. But that's not the way Jesus treat, teaches us to address God in, in the prayer of the kingdom. Yes, He is our Father, but He's a Father in heaven. And then there's something else in the way we address God, in the way Jesus teaches us to address God, that oftentimes goes unnoticed. Notice Jesus says, our Father. He doesn't say, my Father. Christianity is not an individualistic religion, dear friends. Even though earlier Jesus taught us to pray in our closets, just a few verses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we should never perceive of our spirituality in terms of private, rugged individualism, which is so highly worshipped in today's culture. And if you read through the rest of the Lord's Prayer, the petitions of this prayer are not simply private petitions. They're not simply individualistic petitions. Look at verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not pray for our own needs. This does not mean that we should only pray for the members, for others, and not for our own uh, experiences, for our own sins, for our own temptations, for our own physical needs. No. But it does mean that Whenever we pray for ourselves, whenever we pray for our needs, we need to realize we're not alone. Our needs are part of the needs of the body of Christ. So even in your praying, even in your private praying, don't think of yourself individualistically. There's a sense in which the Lord's Prayer is really the church's prayer. It's a prayer of the disciples as they're gathered. It's a prayer of, of, the, of the Christians living in community with one another. So when we address God in, in prayer, let's remember our Father in heaven. That's the way we should address God in kingdom prayers. And now let's look at the priorities of the kingdom prayers. We looked at false assumptions about prayer. Then we looked at how to address God in prayer. And finally, we get to the, the priorities, the petitions of the kingdom prayer and the priorities they have. Once we address God in the proper way, let's see how is it that we bring petitions to Him. 
And we looked at this prayer. If we look at this prayer a little more closely, we notice that it's divided in two parts. There are six petitions, and they're divided in two parts. Verses 9 and 10 focus on God's name, on His kingdom, and on His will. And then verses 11 through 13 focus on our needs, physical needs, then the need for forgiveness, and finally the need to be protected from temptation. Let's look at each of these requests and the way Jesus teaches us to pray. The first request of the kingdom is in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really use the word hallowed very much in my vocabulary. It's not like I meet with John or with, with other members in this congregation and say, John, hallowed be you. We just don't use that. We use that for God, but do you know what it means? The word for hallowed, or the verb hollow, to hollow, comes from holiness. It is, in other ways, a, a saying, sanctified be you, or God, may your name be sanctified, or may your name be holy. The holiness of God, dear friends, is the first request of the prayer of the kingdom. After we address God in the right way, the first thing that the prayer of the kingdom utters is, may your name, O God, be holy. Do you remember Mary when she prayed, or when she prayed the prayer of praise to the angel after she heard that she would be with child? She says in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. In the passage that our brother Jerry read earlier from Isaiah, Jesus, uh, God talks about a time when God will heal the nation and they will sanctify the Holy One of Israel. In, a, in, a, in some way, the Lord's Prayer is a, is a small glimpse, a fulfillment of that time when the disciples, when the new community that God restores will sanctify the Holy Name of God. And the Kingdom Prayer begins with this request that we address to God, may the name of God be holy. Friends, as we address God as Father, we should recognize that He is holy. And the first petition is that His name would continue to be holy. We desire His name to be holy. That's what distinguishes God from everything else. Now, some people may ask, if God is already holy, why should we pray that God's name would be holy? Are we adding more holiness to God if we pray that God's name should be holy? Why should this petition be part of our praying? Well, friends, in praying for the holiness of God, we don't increase God's holiness, but we do show the desire of our hearts for God's holiness. There are some Christians today, more than we'd like to think, there are some Christians today who prefer to ignore this characteristic of God as holy. They would rather think of God as loving and compassionate. And they try to, to take some attributes of God and, and compare them with others. Now, yes, God is, is loving. God is compassionate. But today, many Christians, even those who acknowledge the fact that God is holy, they think of this characteristic as something they have to put up with, as something they don't like to boast about, as something they don't like to promote. I mean, let's be honest. 
how many times those of you who are, in, when you share the gospel with someone, you actually tell them that God is holy? We would sort of put that behind the rug or put that behind us and say, that's, that's one of those attributes. It's hard to understand. People don't want to think about it. I'm not going to tell you about that. Let me just tell you about the love of God. Do you boast in the holiness of God? Do you take delight in the fact that God is holy? Do you tell people about that? I mean, yes, it can be done the wrong way, but, but do our hearts truly delight in the holiness of God? Friends, in asking and in Jesus teaching us to pray that the name of God should be holy, Jesus is telling us that the holiness of God's name is something that should attract us. It's something that we should cherish, we should desire. This is the meaning of this ambiguous phrase in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. We yearn for the name of God to be holy. We don't add anything to it, but we recognize it, we cherish it, and we delight in it. So the second, that's the first request. The second request is verse 10. Your kingdom come. And then it goes on. Let me just talk on that first request, that second request. Your kingdom come. Remember what we said in, this, in, in the sermon on, on the mount in the series, in the Gospel of Matthew, the notion of the kingdom of God does not refer simply to heaven, but to the reign of God in the lives of those whom God redeems. The kingdom of God is the manifestation of the perfect accomplishment uh, of God's will and His righteousness without any rebellion getting in the way. And that's why this, the meaning of the second petition, your kingdom come, is really unpacked in the third petition in the same word, verse, which says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a sense in which we can treat both of these petitions together. To pray for the kingdom of God to come means that we pray for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, God's will on earth is not done exactly in the same, to ex the same extent as in heaven. Why? Because on earth there's still evil. On earth and in our own lives there's still rebellion. But the second and third petition of the Lord's Prayer is for the will of God to be done here on earth, in my life, as it is in heaven. If this is a desire of our hearts, if this is the petition of our prayers, it means two things, at least two things. First, we should be interested to learn about God's will. If we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we should be interested to learn. In God's, of, of God's will. Those who pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, but are not seeking to learn God's will, are proving they're not truly understanding what they're praying. They're just praying mechanically. How can we desire the will of God on earth, but we're careless to learn about it and to grow in understanding it? And the second implication is that we should not only be interested to learn about His will, but we should be committed to do it ourselves. To pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to live with hatred towards our brothers and sisters is an act of hypocrisy. To pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to live in adultery is hypocrisy. We say one thing in our prayers, but live 
something else in our lives. To pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but as soon as you finish that prayer, you go out and pursue a divorce on an unbiblical grounds is an act of hypocrisy. You say one thing today in church, but you, your life does something else. To pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but you keep on lying to your employer or to your spouse or to your friends is to live a life of hypocrisy. You're praying for the will of God to happen on earth as it is in heaven, but you yourself are one of those who rebel against it. Friends, do we really mean when we pray the Lord's Prayer, do we really mean what we say? Your will, O Father, be done here on earth as it is in heaven without any obstruction, without any rebellion? That's the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Do we truly want these petitions? Do we truly mean these petitions? These are the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. For God's name to be sanctified, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done. Now, the second part of the prayer focuses on personal needs. And notice the three needs Jesus includes in this prayer. Pr prayer for daily provisions, prayer for forgiveness of sins, and prayer for protection from temptation. Look at verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Now, this petition sounds strange today when we have supermarkets full of food and when we get paid, not on a daily basis, but at least every two weeks or on a monthly basis. But in Jesus' time, when most of the work was rewarded at the end of the day, this petition had a different weight, had a different meaning. But the principle stands for us today as well. We need to pray to our Father in heaven to meet our physical needs on a daily basis, even though we know we have jobs, even though we know we, have a, we might have a savings account, even though we, we sort of know we're going to have food today. Such prayers show the dependence of our hearts on God. He is our provider. And by praying for our daily bread, Jesus shows that nothing is too small to bring to the Lord in prayer. After praying for our daily physical necessities, and by the way, did you notice how short that list is for daily physical necessities? Just one. Then he goes on to some other personal needs, and these are a little surprising. Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, there are some people who think, some Christians who think, that we no longer need to pray this, because Christ has already paid our debt on the cross. But friends, Scripture teaches us that our sin is much like a debt. Every time we incur it, we need to take care of it. Now, yes, there's a sense in which Jesus died for all our sins, but Scripture does teach us every time we commit a sin, we should come before the Father and ask for forgiveness. We should confess it. it must, sin must be dealt with whenever we accumulate it. And don't think that just because Jesus did it for us 2,000 years ago, you don't have to confess it today. Now, what muddies the water in this request is a comparison Jesus includes. It's not forgive us our debts, that's not the, the, the main issue. The, the, the big struggle in this request is, is what happens afterwards. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Do we realize what Jesus is saying here? He's saying we should ask God for God's forgiveness of our debts in relationship or in accordance with how we forgive others their debts, their sins. Now, this is such a radical teaching that, that Jesus has to explain it a little further, and he, he comes back to it in verses 14 and 15. Look at what Jesus continues to say. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Even this explanation makes it, makes it more difficult. What does Jesus mean here? This verse makes it sound that unless we forgive others, God won't forgive us. And this seems a, a strange condition for forgiveness. Jesus here, however, is not saying that the foundation of God forgiving us is if we forgive others. In chapter 18 of Matthew, Jesus gives another parable of this teaching, of this principle of forgiveness. And there, uh, Jesus illustrates the kingdom of heaven with a king, the parable of a king who forgave one of his servants from a, a great debt that the servant incurred. And that servant was so happy, he went on. But as he went on from away, away from the king, he met another of his fellow servants who also owed him a very, very small debt. But this servant, who had just been forgiven of a huge debt by the king, would not forgive his fellow servant of a small debt this fellow servant owed him. So when the king hears about it, and hears what this, this servant did to his fellow servant, brings him to, into his presence, and look at how, at how the king responds to this servant in Matthew 18 verses 32. You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handing him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus goes on and explains this parable, and he says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The point is that God forgives us based on, the point is not that God forgives us based on our forgiveness. God forgives us based on our trust in Christ and on Christ's sacrifice for us. However, when we have received God's forgiveness and truly understand it, we would be people who forgive others. To claim that we have been forgiven by God or to desire to be forgiven by God, but we're not willing to forgive others is a great act of hypocrisy. It shows that we have missed to understand God's forgiveness in our own lives. If we do not act or will not forgive others, we should have no comfort that God will forgive us even though we might think we believe in Christ. So when Jesus teaches us to pray that God would forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, he teaches us to remind ourselves that we have a responsibility to forgive others. Friends, let me ask you this morning, do you dare to pray 
this petition as Jesus taught us? I tell you, as I was preparing for this message, I had to pause before I would pray this prayer. Because it's really indicting on me to pray this way carelessly. Do we dare to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? I pray that we would be sincere and we would truly mean to pray this prayer. And finally, the last request Jesus brings up is in verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, this is a strange way to express a final petition in this prayer. Jesus is not assuming that God would consider leading us into temptation. Jesus is using this petition to emphasize the second part of this verse, but deliver us from evil. In other words, lead us not into temptation, but into deliverance from evil. The evil in our own hearts, the evil in our own nature, an evil that will stay with us until we die. Now, by including this petition in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is saying that our hearts should not have a laxed attitude towards our inclination to sin. We should not get accustomed to the fact that we sin. There are many people who say, yeah, I know I'm going to sin until I die. You know what? That's just me. I'm not going to worry about it. Friends, in this last petition of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching us that even though until we die, evil will stay with us, we need to be praying regularly for protection from temptation and from protection and deliverance from evil because it will stay with us until we die. It doesn't mean we should be okay with it. It means we should pray against it. So we come to the end of this prayer and we remember how Jesus wants us to pray. Not just what to pray, but how to pray. He's teaching us to address the king as our father in heaven. And then the first petitions are concerned for God's holiness. We pray for it. We desire it. Then we're concerned for the coming kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, for his will to be done. And then once the focus is on, on God and his kingdom, then and only then the prayer is focused on our needs, our physical needs, and on our spiritual needs. Throughout this prayer, we saw a clear orientation we ought to have towards the kingdom of God, even in our praying. Friends, notice again, the first three petitions of this prayer address the needs of the kingdom, not our needs. And this should be a great lesson to learn. The priorities of the prayer of the kingdom is that it first concerns the needs of the kingdom, not our needs. How often we come into God's presence and we just bring in our needs, our to-do list, as if God was our honey and we gave him our honey to-do list. No. When we come to the Lord in prayer, we should first and foremost be concerned about the needs of the kingdom of heaven. And then and only then bring our needs to him. Why this emphasis? Because, friends, our lives, our entire lives, including our prayers, should be prayers for the kingdom. Let me ask you at the end of this message today, are we more concerned about God's kingdom than about our physical needs? Do the priorities of our prayers show that? And even if, you are stuck on our, if we were stuck on our own needs, here's a second question. Are we more concerned about our spiritual needs than, than about our physical needs? 
Notice in the three personal needs, only one was for physical, the other two were spiritual needs. Are we more concerned about our spiritual needs than our physical needs? A great indication of how we answer these questions is by noticing how we pray and what we pray for. Yes, we should pray for our physical needs. Yes, we should pray for, for the sick. Yes, we should pray for rain. Yes, we should pray for jobs. We should pray for the smallest details of our lives. But do we bring these requests along with the spiritual needs we have? Do we bring our personal petitions in light of the petitions of the kingdom of heaven? This is how Jesus teaches us how to pray. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. O Lord, this is the prayer of your people here at Park Hills Baptist Church. We pray that we would learn how to pray. We pray that we would pray the prayer of the kingdom in a sincere way so that every aspect of our lives would be fully devoted to your kingdom, including our prayer life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing a final, final song today. Sing with me how great